The one thing that I think we will not be when we see Jesus' face for the first time is argumentative. (laughs) We're not going to look at Him and go, Yeah, Lord, I know You said this, but... um, Why is it so hard to be pure in this world? Why is holiness something that we tend to attain to when we gather and worship, but during the week, we tend to rationalize it away? When we see Him, we will have no other desire but to be holy as He is holy. We will be awestruck. We'll talk about that a bit tonight. We're going to pick up in verse 23 of Acts chapter 4. Which says, when they had been released, that is Peter and John, they went to their own and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. Fresh off their five-star overnight accommodations in a Jerusalem jail, followed by the threats of the religious leaders, now Peter and John are back with their own. And note that in verse 23, I think it's so beautiful and so valuable It says that they went to their own. I have a lot of conversations with people about Bible translations, and sometimes they're like, what difference does it really make? You know, I like the NIV. It's more readable than the NASB or the, you know, KJV or the Who's It V, whatever. Does it really matter all that much? And in most cases, no, not necessarily as long as it's about Jesus, and it's actually a translation as opposed to a paraphrase, you're probably going to know enough to be saved. All you got to really know is Jesus, right? The problem is that things get missed. One of the reasons why I chose years ago to teach out of the New American Standard Bible is because it is a word-for-word translation. And when you get a word-for-word translation, you get what was actually written. The nice thing also in the New American Standard Bible, along with the King James Version, is that any time a word is inserted that was not there in the original language, it's italicized. And so we have here italicized, when they had been released, they went to their own companions. But the word companions is not there. And I think without the word companions, it's far more precious. They went to their own. Now, stay with me. The Greek word there is idios, but it's not idiotis. Okay, like last week, we were talking about idiotis being, you know, foolish and and unlearned and and all that. No, idios is where we get our word for idiosyncrasy. Unique. Those who are uniquely theirs. Peter and John were not told, raced home to their wives, although their wives may have been there. We know Peter was married. They didn't race home to their families, although their families may have been there. What they did was they went to their own. And very quickly we find out their own was the church. Their own was other believers. Their own like-minded, like-hearted people. Who are your own? Who are your own? Who, who do you take it to? Who do you run to? With, with rejoicing or with trouble? Who do you pick up the phone and call? Who do you seek out? Whether in glorious times or hard times in life, who are your own? We have a beautiful example here of our own being the church. That's the way it's supposed to be. A people that we relate to. A people that we have the greatest affinity with of all affinities on earth. You know, there are different affinity groups out there. 
different things that people share in common. We share Jesus. Is there anyone or anything greater to share than Jesus? We share a common salvation. We share in an eternal truth. Our own. Paul wrote in Philippians 2 verse 1, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in the same Spirit, intent on one purpose. And they were. They were. Peter and John went to their own because there's a unity, again, among believers in Christ that is different than any other unity on earth. It is more intimate and it is more eternal than any other group of people that you might call your own. Who are your own? Now, if you are sitting there tonight thinking, well, I don't know. I don't know that I would run to the church. I don't know that I would go straight to church people with my problems, then I would encourage you to get to know a few church people right here at the bridge. I would encourage you not to wait for people to come to you, but for you to go to them, seek out your own, because like it or not, we are each other's own. We are idios. Not idiotis. Idios. We are unique one to another. And the first thing they do when Peter and John come to their own is, man, they bend the knee and they begin to pray and what a prayer. Verse 24, and when they heard this, they lifted their voice or their voices to God with one accord. And listen, they got some serious mileage out of this accord. Yes, the pun was intended. But seriously, if you want to go the distance, you do it in one accord. You do it in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace with other believers. You want to last in your Christian life, you do it with other Christians. You walk together, you pray together, you worship together, you struggle together, you sharpen each other. You occasionally have conflict, but because the Lord is Lord over both of you, you work it out together. And in so doing, we grow in unity. We go further than we can possibly go on our own in one accord, like-minded, like-hearted fellowship. So they all lift up their voices together. They say, Oh Lord, it is You who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Psalm 146, verse 6. Who by the Holy Spirit, through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, Why did the nations or the Gentiles rage? And the peoples devise foolish things? The kings of earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ or anointed one? For truly in this city, they're praying, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus... Whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, a couple of things to note. First of all, they're praying the Bible. 
They pray the Word of God. Psalm 146. Psalm 2. As they cry out this prayer together in one accord, in unity. They go straight to the psalm of the anointed Messiah. The second psalm, verses 1 and 2, they quote there in verse 25 and 26. They pray this psalm. They know this psalm. They understand this psalm. And as a matter of fact, their their commentary, their understanding, their interpretation is spot on. They ascribe this psalm to Jesus. They pray it as fulfilled. Indeed, Lord, in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, your Mashiach. They understood, they had been well taught that Psalm 2 was about Yeshua, HaMashiach, Jesus Christ. They pray for something else as well, but I just noticed something and I want to mention it to you. Today I got a phone call from my daughter from Wisconsin. Actually, it started out as a text. Dad, where do you stand on predestination? Yeah, that won't take any time at all, sweetheart. (laughs) A couple of texts back and forth, and finally I just hit call. (laughs) She picked up the phone laughing. Okay, so what's the deal on this? She's in a Bible study, she's studying it, and and they're studying Ephesians chapter 1. Which talks about how we were predestined. Paul writing that says we were predestined. It's pretty clear. And she said, where do you stand on predestination versus free will? Well, we've talked about that in here. Do you believe in predestination or do you believe in free will? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I believe that the Lord foreknew my choices and therefore predestined my life. But He foreknew first, before He predestined. In other words, He didn't take away my choice. He knew what my choices would be. He knows what your choices would be. And if you're unclear about this, Romans 8.29 makes it pretty clear. Those whom He foreknew, He also predestined. Foreknowledge comes first. If Paul hadn't said that, we might be able to have the debate. But the fact that Paul said it is based on foreknowledge explains the whole thing of God's sovereignty. He knows what you're going to do. He knows every choice you're going to make before you make it. And in knowing that choice, if He knows that you're going to choose Him, He predestines you to be one of His own. Called, chosen, justified, sanctified. He makes it solid for you. He lays out a path for you, knowing what your choices are going to be because He knows you're going to choose Him. God can do that. So yeah, He predestines your life. He also knows if you're going to reject Him. And therefore, a life predestined for separation from God. That you have chosen, that I, well, hopefully not you, you know, but, but that someone chooses. And so we talked about this, Hannah and I, and I, I see it right here in, in the prayer. They say to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Listen, there was one person in all the history of the world who landed on this planet predestined. And that's Jesus. The choice had already been made. The decision cast in iron. That he would come to die. So he was predestined to the very death that took place. Predestined for those gathered together against him to crucify him and to take him out. Well, they pray this prayer. They pray the Bible. They also pray, note this, for boldness. 
And I really like that, that they say, and now, grant, verse 29, your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. That is prayer numero uno. Give us boldness to speak your word, Lord. Note that they don't pray for protection. My, how different than the church of the last days. Oh God, protect us against all those out there who are coming against us. Hey, they don't pray for protection. They pray for boldness to face whatever threats may come. Don't protect us, Lord. Just allow us to be bold. And if we die in the battle, we die in the battle. And if we're harmed in any way, we're harmed in any any way. But just give us confidence. Help us to be bold. It is not time, gang, for walls and hedges. As if a shrubbery could keep back Satan. It's time for shields and swords. And I'm talking about here at the end of the age. It is not time to cower. It is time for courage. It is time to go forth. It is time to take it to the enemy. Because you know where the enemy is? You know what the enemy has around him? Captives. And it is time for the church to go set those captives free. Not to be praying for protection, not hiding behind our walls, but out in the world, calling out the name of Jesus to anyone who will hear. And if we take flack for it, so be it. Lord, just make us bold. Just give us confidence. The parallels between the first century church and what I believe now to be the last century church must not be missed. And as they pray, so I believe we must pray. As they function, so I believe we must function. And we have a greater urgency now to get the captives out of the enemy's hands because we know our king is coming imminently. And note again that these believers, they simply ask that they might speak his word with all confidence. That's what they ask for themselves. They ask the Lord to extend his hand via healing and signs and wonders. But they don't confuse their role with his role. What do you mean? I mean their focus was on the delivery of the message. Their focus was on the word of God. Their focus was on getting the gospel out. Their focus was not on whether or not they could perform signs and wonders. They pray, Lord, give us boldness to speak your word and and by your hand do signs and wonders. Well, that's the right balance. So the signs, the wonders, the miraculous, the supernatural, that's in the hand of God. And He will use His servants, as we'll see in a moment. And He'll work through His people, as He promises to do. But the issue in the supernatural is that's, that's what God does. Well, what do we do? We preach the Word. We get the Word out. We focus on the Gospel, not on the gifts. And the gifts are incredibly important, so please don't misunderstand me. I believe in the spiritual gifts. I believe, as Paul describes them, 1 Corinthians 12 and 14, especially with the big 13 in the middle about love. I absolutely believe in the gifts and that they are for today as they were for then. But I also know that the primary focus of the church has got to be to get the word out. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, and there's so much more in this prayer you can draw out. I encourage you to study it and think it through on your own time. But when they had prayed, the whole place where they had gathered was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak in tongues with... Oh no. 
and began to speak the Word of God with boldness. Rick, you taking a swipe at speaking in tongues? No, I'm just saying what happened was their prayer was answered. They asked to speak the Word with boldness and they spoke the Word with boldness. And they were confident. The whole place was shaken. This was such an awesome moment. As Peter and John come to their own, their own all gathered together. Everybody is so encouraged, so focused, so filled with the Spirit, and the Spirit's there, and the place is shaken. What do you, what do you mean shaken? Well, I don't know. Ask Luke. He wrote it. The word is saluo. The word shaken, saluo, and it means to shake, to stir up, to cause, to totter. Any questions? The Greeks in the common language would use this word saluo to talk about the tossing of the seas or earthquakes. They described a literal shaking. And the point is this, the Lord here gives a physical manifestation that accompanies the filling of His Holy Spirit. Why? To confirm to all those present that He heard their prayer. And that it was His power that was at work. And it was His Spirit that was giving them confidence. And they began to speak the Word of God. So whatever we do, as we talk about the Spirit, as we learn more of the Holy Spirit, as we seek the filling of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the power, the strength of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in this church, as we do so, let's keep the first thing first thing. The Word of God. We are here to get the Gospel out, not to have a church carnival. The Word of God. Now, i got to give you a little side note here before we go on. There's an interesting difference between the end of Luke's first volume and his second volume. In fact, it's the same difference between all the Gospel accounts and the beginning of the church as recorded in Acts. And the difference is in how we see the person of Jesus. You know, in the Gospels, it was, it was always Jesus there in the first person. Well, now we see Jesus in the first person in the Spirit. Primarily. Acts chapter 9, he'll show up. Once or twice more in the book. But primarily we see Jesus in the first person in the Holy Spirit. Spirit of Jesus, the Spirit of Christ. Now, in the book of Acts and forward on through the church age, believers speak to Jesus in the second person. That is, through prayer. Words directed to Jesus, talking to Him as we have already tonight. Now, they talk about Jesus in the third person as they spread the gospel of His kingdom, referring to Him. What I'm saying is, and maybe this is kind of obvious to you, but there's a significant reason for this. With few exceptions, there are less red letters in the book of Acts. But no less focus on Jesus as the Christ. No less focus than we've seen throughout the Hebrew Scriptures. Because in the scroll of the book, he said, it is written of me. Because he said... You think that in these words you have life, it is these that testify of me. So it's no less about Jesus, no less focused on Jesus. We don't leave Jesus behind now to focus on the church because the church without Jesus is no church at all. There have been times in my life 
in my involvement in churches where we went weeks where the only mention of Jesus' name was in the closing of a prayer. And there's something wrong with that. Because the church without Jesus is no church at all. And the most interesting thing to me about the person of Jesus right here is His designation. Luke writes that He is servant. We see that four times. I mentioned last week, we ran across this, and I would, I would bring this up this week. Twice, Luke records uh, Peter using this word of Jesus. Back in Acts chapter, thir- uh, chapter 3, verse 13, if you just look back, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus, the one whom you delivered and disowned in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release Him. Skip down to verse 26 of chapter 3. For you first, God raised up His servant. There it is again. And sent Him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. He's talking to Israel, talking to the Jewish people, and saying, to you first, His servant was sent. Twice, this designation for Jesus shows up in the believer's prayer. In verse 27 of chapter 4, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. And then again down in verse 30, We pray that you would extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. This is so important, so stay with me on this. In verse 30, the King James Version translates this, Thy holy child. Thy holy child, Jesus. And i got to be honest, that has bugged me for years. I don't like that. Your holy child, Jesus. Why, Rick? You got a problem with Christmas? Besides, wasn't Jesus a child? Listen, not after the resurrection. The Jesus that I worship today is not a babe in a manger. The Jesus that we exalt in worship is glorified. He is resurrected. He is awesome. He is awe-inspiring. He is not a child. He is not a baby. Well, how come they translate it that way then? Well, because the word can mean that depending on the context. And that is not the context here. You would be hard pressed to find anywhere in the scriptures after his resurrection that Jesus is referred to as a baby. This is not there. And the King James translation of thy holy child, again, we get why they do it, I guess. Well, no, I know. Because of the Roman Catholic Church. Because of the time of the King James translation, the child was a big deal. Mother and child. Madonna and baby. And so it's translated that way in the King James translation. I think the New American Standard Bible rightly translates this, your holy servant, your holy servant, your holy servant. Over and over and over, because even at Christmas, the birth that we celebrate is the birth of a resurrected king. We celebrate that he was born into the world, that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. But as the word became flesh, the word also rose from the dead and is glorified. And this is the Jesus we worship. The one who came out of the manger and out of the tomb. He did not remain a child and he did not resurrect as a baby. But servant. 
servant is right on. By the way, when Jesus resurrected, it's interesting, Paul talks about the begottenness of Jesus in Acts chapter 13. Why don't you skip ahead there? Let's get a preview. Acts chapter 13, Paul does refer to Jesus as the begotten of God. But I point this out because of exactly what I'm saying, that even the begottenness of Jesus does not refer to His birth in Bethlehem. It refers to His resurrection from the tomb. Look at this, Acts chapter 13, down to verse 32. Paul says, We preach to you the good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this promise to our children in that He raised up Jesus. As it is also written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So now, Paul is using the second psalm as the believers pray the second psalm. Obviously it's of great significance talking about the anointed Messiah. But Paul goes on. Verse 34, As for the fact that He raised Him up from the dead, no longer to return to decay, He has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Paul says the begottenness of Jesus is the resurrection. Then in Psalm 2, where the Lord says, Today you are my son. Today I have begotten you. He's talking about the day of the resurrection. Not the day of the birth. We serve a resurrected servant. And by the way, when the Quran claims that God is neither begotten nor does He beget, it is a denial of the resurrection of Jesus. It is not a denial of the virgin birth, it is a denial of the resurrection. Not that it matters because it's a misnomer, Allah is no God. So (laughs) I don't even know what they're talking about. Allah is not begotten nor does He beget. Yeah, that's because Allah does not exist. So why then, going back to Acts 4, why does Luke use the word child? And my answer is he really doesn't. Because in the context, the Greek word here is pais. And pais means offspring. Pais is better translated servant. Thy pais, Jesus In other places, the King James translation rightly translates this son. Because he is an offspring servant. Therefore, a son in the house. The son of God. It's the only word, pais is the only word here that that captures the essence of Jesus both as son and servant. Otherwise, you'd have to use a couple of words to describe him, which Luke could have done, but he uses pais, because together, pais describes both a servant and a son of the house, and Jesus is both. Servant and son. Son and servant. He's the servant of the Lord, as Isaiah prophesied numerous times in all the servant songs of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Behold my servant, who who I uphold. My chosen one in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Isaiah 52, verse 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted, not tickled and given a pacifier. 
Just as many were astonished at you, my people, so his appearance was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of man. My servant, the Lord says. Isaiah 53.11 As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see and be satisfied by his knowledge. The righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. He is the servant of the Lord, the Pais, the servant. He is also the son of God, the Pais, the offspring of God. He's called the Son of God 38 times in the New Testament. Son of God, Son of God, Son of God. And listen, to a Jewish mind, that is much more powerful than it is to the American culture. For us, a son is a kid. To the Jew, a son is the heir. A son takes over the father's house. A son is equal to the father. So he's called the Son of God. By the way, and and stick with me here on this. It's interesting to me that in the entire book of Revelation, he's only called Son of God one time. One time. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. Well, why is that significant? Because there Jesus is speaking to the church at Thyatira, which is the papal church. And to the papal church, he doesn't call himself the little child. He calls himself the Son of God. Absolutely clear as to his identity. Rick, why are you going after the Catholics? You know, I'm not meaning to be offensive. I'm just meaning to clarify a few things. That there, in Revelation 2.18, he doesn't even use the word pais that can be translated child. He uses the word huios, which means... Son, heir, a parent, the inheritor of all things. And he says it to the papal church. Well, how do you know it's to the papal church? Go listen to the teaching on Revelation chapter 2, verse 18. I'll tell you. I just want to tell you right now. But I will tell you this. The Madonna and child emblem, symbol that you've seen all these years and is often promoted in Catholic churches and in Catholicism, existed long before Jesus. It's a symbol of Babylonian paganism. Madonna and child. And it's something that was carried over around 312 A.D. when Constantine came into the church and gathered all the Christians around him. Oh, there's a big story here. I won't get into it. But when he legalized Christianity, what he did was he carried over Babylonian paganism and mixed it with Christianity to make it one big, happy, paganistic Christian family. It was what I would call an objectionable marriage. And we know he did this because we have coins that were minted by Constantine that have the cross on one side and pagan symbols on the other. That he just said, you Babylonian priests... You can keep your jobs, just now we're going to focus on Jesus. And there's a fascinating book called The Woman Rides the Beast by Dave Hunt that I would recommend you pick up and read if you want to study that out and get into that a bit further. Bottom line is this. Don't limit Jesus to the borders of Bethlehem or to the confines of Christmas. Don't limit Him to being a little child. He is son and He is servant 
And the person of Jesus is as present in Acts and in the church age and in the church today as he ever was. In fact, I would say Jesus is more present now than he was when he walked the earth. Remember that when Jesus walked the earth in those, in those 33 or so years, the only way you could see him is if you were with him. The only way you could hear his voice is if you were standing right there, if you were listening to him speak. If you were miles away, if you were on a different continent, you, you wouldn't be able to hear. But we can. And we can know him now more intimately than he was even known then. Well, verse 32, continuing on. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed anything belonging to him was his own. All things were common property. Well, we talked about this on Sunday. How wonderful it was. Everyone's sharing everything. Barnabas steps up. Joseph, what the apostles call him, Barnabas, son of encouragement, sells, a, sells land and gives it all to the church. And of course, along come Ananias and Sapphira, and they want to get in on the action. It's short-lived. They sell a property, they give most of it, some of it, not all of it, to the church, but they say they give all of it to the church. They lie to the church, they lie to the Holy Spirit, and we covered all of that on Sunday. And you might call that a a, a dark chapter, briefly. You might, if it was a human decision for Ananias and Sapphira to be killed. But it wasn't. And it was one of the most significant things I believe God did in the early church. What, killed them? No. Purified his church. Had to happen. Verse 12. Picking up after all this fact, pick up in verse 11, and great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Yeah, a bit terrifying. Ananias and Sapphira went down for what seemed like a little white lie. Not that big a deal. And again, I ask you the question, how big a deal will our little white lies be when we're face-to-face with Jesus? How big a deal will the little sins, you know, the ones we sweep under the rug, they're not such a worry. Ah, don't, don't get all, you know, moral on me. All that stuff. How big a deal is that going to be when we're standing in His presence? And why would we be any different today than we will then? Why not seek purity? Why not seek holiness? I'm totally getting ahead of myself. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. They were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. That is, they're in the temple, gathering in the temple, meeting in the temple, worshiping in the temple, teaching is going on in the temple. Can you imagine what the priests are thinking? In verse 13, none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And again, we talked about that. Those who didn't dare associate were those who really didn't have a whole lot of faith anyway. They might have associated if they could just kind of slide in on someone else's coattails. They could just kind of be part of the party but not give their lives to Jesus. They might have. But when they saw this happen, they were gone. They were back to the shadows. However, verse 14, all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits. And note this, they were all being healed, which means the shadow healing worked. 
any question about, well, maybe they were just doing that and hoping that Peter's shadow would fall on them, but it really didn't do anything. No, they were all being healed. Peter would walk by and his shadow would cause someone to rise up. Talk about a heady experience. Do you see why perhaps Jesus allowed Peter to go through the massive failure he did just before this? You see that now Peter's denials of Jesus, Peter's absolute betrayal of his Lord, how horrific that was, was important to the sanctification of this man so that now in these moments of amazing godly power, he wouldn't turn around and start to claim credit. All he needed was to hear the rooster crow in the morning. And he would know, it's not me. It's not me. What an amazing alarm clock for Peter every day. That rooster. A little reminder that he was frail and fallible man. What's the deal with the shadow though? I mean, was it magical? Were there magic crystals? You know, little rainbow sparks shooting out of it in the shade? Was there something... Listen... There's no substance to a shadow. There is no substance to a shadow. And I think it's marvelous that his shadow, as Peter walked by, people were getting healed when his shadow went over them because there's no substance there. There's also no substance in religion. It's just the stuff of emptiness. And Paul describes religion this way, Colossians 2.17, things which are a mere shadow of that which is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Why were people getting healed when a substanceless shadow passed over them? Because the substance belonged to Christ. Because of the power of Jesus. But but why the sudden uptick in supernatural activity? Prior to this, after the day of Pentecost, we saw one healing. The one little lame guy, right? Who starts inappropriately dancing in the temple. You know, doing his thing. Why just the one? And all of a sudden now, boom, it explodes. Massive healing. They're laying people out in the streets. They're getting healed. Amazing supernatural activity is taking place all over Jerusalem. Why now? But remember what we talked about on Sunday. What had just happened? Ananias and Sapphira sinned big time. God purified His church. There were two things in the atmosphere of the church right now that had not happened prior to this. What's that? Great fear and great purity. Great fear and great purity. The church is best cultivated with great power in, listen, in the greenhouse of great fear and great purity. A church that fears the Lord, trembles in His presence, holds Him in highest esteem and awe, which, by the way, is why I spent so much time on Jesus as son and servant and not as child. The church that has great fear of the Lord and the church that has great purity will see the power. That's part of the problem in the church today in America. I believe why we don't see as much power because the church is just not that pure. You want to see the power of the Spirit at work? You want to see the supernatural things they were seeing? 
Great fear, great purity. And I put this out to you. What does this mean for our own, our fellowship, the Bridge Christian Fellowship? What does this mean for us? If we would be like-minded, if we would be a like-hearted people, if we would see Jesus as the substance of our faith, then we must be a people of great fear and great purity. We must reject the religious game. Be a people who say, I don't do that kind of thing. I don't go to that kind of place. I don't think those thoughts because I fear the Lord too much. Because I want to live a pure life. Oh, you're such a goody two-shoes. Thank you. Man, it's time for the church to wear that as a badge of honor. Yeah, I'm a goody two-shoes. Because I want my Lord to be proud of me. And I serve an awesome God who is perfect. And even with all of my trying and all my pursuing holiness, I still know I'm not perfect. But oh, I want to be. I want to be pure in the sight of the Lord. Keep your finger there and turn over to 1 Peter. 1 Peter, toward the end of your New Testaments, chapter 1, verse 14. Actually, let me begin in verse 13. 1 Peter 1, 13. Now remember, Peter's writing this. Peter was there. Peter saw what happened when the church was purified. He saw how the Lord was able to work, how the Holy Spirit was unleashed supernaturally when the church was pure. And he writes in 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, prepare your minds. Literally, gird up your loins. Get ready to run. Prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, he says, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it's written, you shall be holy for I am holy. If you address the Father as the Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth. Holiness and fear. Great fear, great purity. And in that atmosphere, well, we see here the example in the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit completely unleashed. We see power fall in amazing ways. An incredible uptick of all the things that the Spirit would do through the church. Great fear. Great purity. How do you evaluate this church? How do you evaluate your experience in the Bridge Fellowship? Do we evaluate the church in terms of the volume of the music? Do we make evaluations based on the freshness of the coffee? Or perhaps the number of laughs in a given teaching? See, I knew that wouldn't get anyone laughing right there. It's okay to laugh. And I hope we do lots, and I hope there's great joy, but do you evaluate the teaching based on how much you laughed that night? <laughs> it was really funny, man. you got to go listen to it. What? Tell you, there's only one reason I'm ever funny. It's because I'm weird. It has nothing to do with the Word of God. It's just Rick being. Do we evaluate? Thank you. 
So waiting for that amen. Do we evaluate this fellowship in terms of what other people are doing? Or what other people are saying? Or what other people are wearing? Or do we evaluate the Bridge Christian Fellowship in terms of the substance of Jesus here? And the holiness of God? And the purity of the people seeking after Him? Do we evaluate this church in terms of the simplicity of what we're doing? Man, there's not a lot going on there, but man, they're always talking about Jesus. And every time they're together, they're confessing and they're repenting and they're coming before the Lord and they're seeking Him, they're desiring His holiness. Here's the issue. Power flows best through purity. Strength is greater in simplicity. We gum it all up. But the Lord said in Isaiah 30, verse 15, Thus says the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength, but you are not willing. It came up today again in staff meeting. That is the push for programs and ideas. All kinds of things. EA, but you got it. Is she here tonight? Okay, good. Let's talk about it. <laughs> EA was in the front office, and, and the way she described it is this. She, she says, I, I, I'm getting more and more calls with more and more ideas for more and more programs, and I'm afraid if we open the door to one, it's just going to be a floodgate of all this stuff going on. What do I do with this? And I said, you tell those people we are not here for them. (laughs) But I can tell you this. God doesn't need my ideas. God doesn't need me to rethink how to do church. God doesn't need a new paradigm. God doesn't need 50 new programs. Brian, in staff meeting, showed us a, a... literally a program of a church I won't mention which one but it's it's a booklet that's like 40 pages of pictures and all the different things and activities and involvement and all this stuff and they're doing a lot of really good things but as my friend Jim Crouch would say are they doing God things? and I was reminded today as we were talking about this that where a church is simple we know God's at work when things are happening. Where a church is complex, do we know He's at work or is it just because the church has a lot to offer? In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. Where there is purity, there is power. Where there is simplicity, there is strength. And again, the believers back in Acts chapter 4, they didn't pray that they might be able to perform healings and signs and wonders. They prayed that all of that would be done by the hand of God. And I pray that, that we would see signs and wonders and miracles by the hand of God. What's the difference? When God does it, He gets the glory. When man does it, we get the glory. I don't want to see any of you doing something supernatural that elevates you or me. But by the hand of God. And for themselves, remember, they just simply ask for the boldness to speak His Word. And here in verses 12 through 16, that's exactly what's going on. They're speaking the Word boldly. Well, Rick, when I look at verses 12 through 16, I don't see a single mention of the speaking of His Word. So how can you say that they're speaking His Word boldly 
at least in these few verses of Scripture. Because verse 14 tells us, and all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women were constantly added. And gang, miracles don't do that. The Word does that. The Word changes hearts. Miracles can get your attention. Again, as we talked about Sunday and last week, miracles are great attention getters, but only the Word of God, the Logos, the Word that God speaks into a heart, only that radically changes a heart. And true believers are coming to the Lord in droves. Miracles don't change hearts. If they did, then the high priest and all his associates would have gotten saved. But read on. Verse 17. The high priest rose up along with all his associates, that is the sect of the Sadducees, and they were filled with jealousy. Why? Because the Sadducees didn't believe in miracles. They're watching all this stuff happen. Think about that. It's actually kind of comical. Their entire theology left the miraculous out. They didn't believe in resurrection because that would be supernatural. They didn't believe in miracles at all. What do you do when something you refuse to believe is happening right in front of you? Well, I'm sorry, I just don't believe it. But that guy was lame and he's walking. Yeah, well, I just don't believe it. But you know he was lame. Yeah, I just I choose not to believe. I'll tell you what the Sadducees did. They tried to shut it down. And by the way, let that be a lesson to us. If things are taking place and we don't, if they don't fit our theology, that's what the church does: is shut it down. What do you mean, Rick? I mean, I am watching liberal Protestant churches right and left fall apart. Liberal Protestant churches today that are in the same boat with the Pharisees, no supernatural, no miracles, no hell, no heaven, no resurrection. Everything is whitewashed, everything is watered down, and there is no allowance for the work of the Holy Spirit. You could say that they're holding to a form of godliness while denying its power. And 2 Timothy 3.5 says, <laughs> avoid such men as these. So the Sadducees, they're filled with jealousy. Verse 18, they laid hands on the apostles. Well, that's nice. And put them in jail. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the gates of the prison and taking them out, he said, go, stand and speak to the people in the temple the whole message of this life. I really like that. The whole message of this life. And upon hearing this, they entered into the temple about daybreak and began to teach. They're in jail. Angel sets them free and goes, now go back and do it again. They go right back to the same place they got arrested and continue doing what got them arrested in the first place. Preaching the Word of God. Jesus said in John 6.63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Jesus said in John 10.10, I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. It's perfect. The whole message of this life. What's that? The Gospel. The Gospel is the whole message of this life. God's Word is the book of life. There is no other. 
Well, there's the Lamb's Book of Life, in which the names of those who are saved are recorded. But in terms of a book on this planet, God's Word is the whole message of life. Everything that pertains to life and godliness, He has given us, Peter writes. And that's what this book is all about. From Genesis to Revelation, this is the book that is about Lachem, life. The Greek word here, speak, when he says, I want you to go back and speak, is laleo. But it's in the present active imperative. You might note that what the angel says to them when he says speak, verse 20, is keep on speaking. It's not just speak at once. You keep on speaking, and if they try and stop you again, you keep on speaking, and you speak, and you speak, and you speak, and you keep on speaking. Well, I've told five people about the bridge, and I've tried to invite five people to church, and they all said no. You keep on speaking. I've shared with at least a dozen people about Jesus, and they keep rejecting me every time I open my mouth. You keep on speaking. And as Peter and John said in Acts 4.20, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. For them, it wasn't a matter of they needed to try to keep speaking. They couldn't help it. They couldn't keep their mouths shut. They just had to talk about Jesus. Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, the angel tells John, you must prophesy again concerning many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. You see, because you cannot imprison the Word of God. That's a great picture that we see here. I mean, they were literally thrown in prison, but you can't imprison the Word of God. Try to lock up the Word of God, and an angel will let it out, and you'll go right back to the same place and start preaching it again. You cannot imprison the Word of God. The reason why the church is still here after 2,000 years, and, and I don't even know how many people saying the church will be dead in a decade, well, we're still here. Why? Because you cannot imprison the Word of God. You can't shut it down. You can't shut us up. We just keep coming back. We're like a bad hair day. <laughs> We keep bringing it day after day across the centuries as the devil has tried to shut us up. His most recent attempt, by the way, is through political correctness. Through the whole movement of having a thought police here in our country. Oh, Rick, you're being paranoid. Am I? You can't say that. That offends me. 99% of the stuff on TV offends me. (laughs) The word cannot be shut down. Every time the devil thinks that he's locked up the word of God, Jesus comes along and proclaims, Isaiah 61, liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. And it just goes on and on and on. Verse 21 continuing, Now when the high priest and his associates came, they called the council together even all the senate of the sons of Israel, and sent orders to the prison house for them to be brought. (laughs) But the officers who came did not find them in the prison. And they returned and poured it back, saying, Duh, I added that. (laughs) We found the prison house locked quite securely, and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened up, we found no one inside. Now when the captain of the temple guard and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them as to what would come of this. They got away. They must be fleeing across the hills. I love it. Verse 25, but someone came and reported, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. And then the captain went along with the officers 
and proceeded to bring them back without violence, for they were afraid of the people that they might be stoned. It's interesting, the first time they laid hands on them and threw them in prison. This time they went, excuse me, <laughs> could you come with us? Could you, could you accompany us please back? Well, when they had brought them, they stood before them, verse 27, stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them saying, we gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name, and yet you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Isn't that great? Oh, that it would be said of this fellowship, you have filled Oak Harbor and Anacortes with your teaching. It's Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. That's all we hear from you bridge people. Yeah. That's all they should hear from us. And you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Hey, that's exactly what they had asked for. Their own words, and I quote, Matthew 27, 24, Pilate said, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to that, that is, see to his death yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be on us and our children. And here they have the audacity to say, you intend to bring this man's blood on us too late. You already have blood on your hands. The real sad thing is if the blood of Jesus was truly on them, they'd be purified and they would be pleased to hear the word that was being preached. If they would only come under the blood of Jesus, washed in the blood of Jesus. Well, verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. I want to underline that verse. That is the key to godly civil disobedience. I hope that it never comes to this, but in case it does, at least we will have talked about this. We must obey God rather than men. Which is simply to say, when the laws of man seek to supersede the laws of God, we go with the laws of God. If the laws of man seek to undermine, if the the Supreme Court should, oh, I don't know, make a ruling about something that is unbiblical... Where do you stand? I stand with the laws of God. I stand before a holy God. A pure and righteous God. Who, by the way, would not be spending any time downtown New York right now, I don't think. I won't get into that. Verse 30. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus. Peter speaking, and the apostles, whom you put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. You see what he's doing? I love this. The preaching begins with great conviction and translates into great compassion. Look, you crucified him, but he's all about forgiveness, man. You wronged him, but he's here for you. You did your worst to Him, but He's back and He loves you and He wants to see you saved. That's what they're saying. And we, verse 32, are witnesses of these things and the Holy Spirit. By the way, the translators add, so is, as if the Holy Spirit is a witness along with them. I think what they're saying is, we're witnesses of these things and we're witnesses of the Holy Spirit. 
We are fully aware of the work that God is doing, that it is the Holy Spirit of the living God. We're witnesses of that too. Whom God has given to those who obey Him. Verse 33, but when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Ever do that? I hate when I do that. You know, with the fingernail clippers, you just get too far in. Does that bother anybody else? (laughs) That's not what it says. When they heard this, they're like, oh. No. They were pierced to the heart. That's what the language describes there. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and intended to kill them. See, the Word of God will cut both ways. The Word of God will pierce someone's heart and cause them to fall on their knees before God saying, Save me! I'm a sinful man. And the Word of, the, uh, of God will pierce the heart, will cut to the heart, and cause some to say, I'm going to get you for this. I don't want any of that. You either see great humility or you see great anger. You see amazing reception or you see an absolute wall go up. Because as the Bible tells us, Hebrews 4.12, the Word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. Piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And that can be marvelously healing or it can be morbidly piercing and convicting. Verse 34. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, respected by all the people, stood up in the council and gave orders to put the men outside for a short time. Gamaliel was the grandson of one of the two most influential rabbis in the days just prior to Jesus. There was Rabbi Shammai and Rabbi Hillel, and Gamaliel is Hillel's grandson. And it's interesting the stance that Gamaliel takes because many have noted that Jesus' teachings as a Jew interpreting the law far more parallel the conservative views of Hillel than they do of Shammai. And so here's Hillel's grandson. No doubt he's heard some of the teachings of Jesus on marriage and divorce. Some of the teachings of Jesus on sexual purity. Some of the teachings of Jesus on the conservative view of the scriptures. No doubt Gamaliel has heard some of this and and has thought, this guy's pretty spot on. And by the way, do you know who was among Gamaliel's prized pupils? Paul. Shaul. A young disciple named Saul at the time. So Gamaliel stands up, verse 35. He said to them, Men of Israel... Take care what you propose to do with these men. For some time ago, Theudas rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a group of about 400 men joined up with him. But he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed, and it came to nothing. After this man, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the census, and drew away some people after him. And he too perished. And all those who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I say to you, stay away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or action is of men, it will be overthrown. If it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, or else you may even be found fighting against God. 
Quickly, Gamaliel points out two very telling signs of false teachers here. In describing Theudas, Theudas boasted that he was somebody. Self-promotion. Self-promotion is a sure sign of a false teacher. And Theodos obviously had a marketing strategy, had his own webpage, Instagram, Twitter, he was all hooked in. He had coffee mugs and marketing, and, and, and of course the mugs all had his picture on them. If you went to his church, his picture would be on the front of the bulletin. Theodos. And Peter said in 2 Timothy 2.18, Speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They're fleshly. And the flesh is all about self. Watch out for the self-promoters. Secondly, there's Judas of Galilee. Well, Judas had a following, so it wasn't self-promotion there as much as popularity. A lot of people were following Judas of Galilee... And there are those false teachers out there that are just looking for a nice warm market share. They're looking for a cadre of people they can draw after themselves. Listen, we are not lemmings. We are disciples. And the difference is that you study to show yourself approved. The difference is you know the Word of God. You study the Word of God. You test everything that is taught to you, whether it's by me or anyone else. You don't listen to the teacher because of the teacher. You don't focus on the teacher. You keep your focus on the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew 7.15, Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You'll know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? What does that tell us about a teacher? Listen, no man's perfect, but there better be fruit of the teaching in the life. And I hold this out to you all. I hope that there is fruit in my life from the teaching. Otherwise, what am I doing? If you think that I'm saying something that's convicting to you, imagine being me all week long. Serious, i got to answer for this stuff. And long ago, the Lord said, don't teach it if you can't live it. (laughs) I almost resigned that day. Every tree, Jesus says, Matthew seven nineteen, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. You look for the fruit. You listen for the teaching. You function as a disciple. That is, you are intent on knowing the word that is preached and being sure that it is accurate and true to the word of God. By the way, anyone remember Theudas? Anyone big fans of Judas of Galilee? Gamaliel was right. They died off. No one even knows who they are. We see their names listed in Scripture here, but we don't even know who they were. What they did. Why they were so impressive in their day. How many people know about Jesus of Nazareth? The teacher that we follow. You can't overthrow God. You cannot kill His church. I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. The church will not die. Verse 40. Well, they took his advice, and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. Jesus told them it was coming. 
Mark 13, verse 9, Be on your guard. They will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in their synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. You will be flogged. Well, what does that mean? It wasn't a slap on the hand. They were scourged. 39 lashes. The 40 lashes minus one. With the flagellum. What happens here, and it's so quick, and the verse is so short, and we're on to the next verse, that sometimes we miss that the apostles, Peter and John and all the guys, when they went back to their own this time, their backs would look an awful lot like the back of Jesus on the day of His crucifixion. Torn up. Flesh ripped. They didn't just get a slap on the hand. Verse 41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, weeping and crying and wimpy and... No! They went their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. I love that. Shame for the name. We got to be like Jesus today. Ah, put that on. That salve. Yeah. We got to do what Jesus did. We now bear on our bodies, as Paul would later say, the brand marks of Jesus. And they rejoiced in it. And there's real joy in suffering shame for the name of Jesus. Any suffering you take in His name is cause for celebration. It's great joy. Peter says if you're reviled for the name of Christ, 1 Peter 4.14, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Oh wait, now stop and think about that. You want to be filled with, baptized with the Holy Spirit? Guess what it's going to bring? Suffering. You can rejoice for the Spirit of God is on you. And if the Spirit of God is on you, you can bank on it. You're going to suffer. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to take your lashes. And Peter says, but make sure, and I think this is a very wise word, make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer. So please, take that to heart. Or a thief, or an evildoer, or a troublesome meddler. But if as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. If you suffer for being idiotous, that's your fault. But if you suffer for the name, if there's shame for the name, praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Verse 42. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Stop speaking the name of Jesus. It's offensive. It's bigotry. It's hate speech. The gospel was preached everywhere. Everywhere they went, in the temple, the gospel was preached. House to house, the gospel was preached. Day and night, the gospel was preached. And 2,000 years later, we are the fruit of that labor. The apostles' teaching is still bearing fruit right now. Tonight, in your life, in mine. Because they were bold and confident. And they spoke the word of the Lord. What will be the fruit of our labor? 
closer we get to the return of Jesus, the more I think about this. What will be the fruit of our labor? And I often say, Lord, I wish I had known this ten years earlier in my life. I wish I had twenty years prior to when I really started to teach Your Word. Prior to when I, I really wanted to be bold for the kingdom. I wish I had known this, Lord. And He gently and gracefully says, You were a kid, Rick. I needed to show you some things. Time is short. What will be the fruit of our labor? In the name of Jesus, go, stand, and speak the whole message of this life. Amen? Father, I pray that You will grant Your servants boldness tonight to go and speak Your Word. To fill us with Your Holy Spirit and with power. Lord, that Your hand will do miraculous, wonderful, powerful, amazing things. Things that can only be attributed to Your glory, to Your presence, to Your work. Use Your servants, but Father, in us and through us, what we pray is that You will give us boldness to speak the Word. Boldness to share the Gospel. Boldness like Peter and the Apostles and and all those of the first century early on. Boldness to proclaim So that we, like them, can say, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. Father, I pray, bless your word to us tonight. Seed it deep in our hearts and cause it to bear fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.